For January 27th, 2020, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 604. The war is the enemy. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your comrades in arms. We are here in the trenches with you. And here, today, we are going up over the top because Dolce et Decorum Est, Pro Patria Podcastori. Uh, it is sweet and po- proper to podcast for your country. We are going to see in a sieve, and we promise that we will do this entire podcast <laughs> in one take. Amazing technical features. <laughs> no, we're actually going to do it in, in a bunch of different takes, but we'll seamlessly edit them together, so you'll never know. Unlike the chickens in this movie, there's going to be a six-hour period of silence after we're knocked unconscious to maintain the single take, as opposed to the cowards <laughs> who made 1917 and did a jump cut over hours of unconsciousness. All right, so let's. Uh, we're talking about 1917. Um, spoiler alert, war is hell. And uh, we're we're going to talk about you know the film and how it ends and and uh, everything everything like that. This is a film from Moriarty to Sherlock Holmes. That is the arc of of this film. Um, so the uh, yeah, and uh, I'm Matt Rather. I am here uh, with my comrades in arms, Matt Belinky. Hello, Matt. Pip pip cheerio. Hey there. Uh, is it Sunday? I thought actually thought it was going to be Friday. So <laughs> I guess I lose the bet. Uh, my friend Pete Fenzel. Uh, in good order. <laughs> Please no one spoil 1918 for me, okay? <laughs> I can't wait to see what happens. <laughs> uh, and and Mark Lee for, for Queen and Country. Or mm, king and king and country, I guess, at the time. This week, please refer to me as Lieutenant instead of Lieutenant. Lieutenant, Lieutenant Lee. All right, uh, all right. Let's start. Let's start with the thing that's kind of the flashiest and most attention grabbing thing about the the film is that it's shot in in it's shot to look like it's done in one take. So the camera is always in motion, uh, or almost always in motion, um, always potentially in motion, I guess I should say. And it follows the characters around, uh, and as they sort of traverse the landscape of the war between the trenches, um, from the, the English to the, to the German side, or I guess from the English to the farther English, um, side and through the the bombed out towns and through the beautiful uh cherry blossoms etc 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 the camera sort of follows them and um i have i have more things to say about the the structure but let's just focus on the one take aspect which has been highlighted and and also i guess criticized in the new york times as being sort of showy and and actually detracting from the um actually detracting from the plot uh what what were your thoughts guys about how the um about how the one take worked, Mark. You brought this up to us in the uh, in our preparation for this. So why don't why don't you dive in and and uh, talk about whether you thought it was distracting, showy, uh, necessary, important, or uh, what? It wasn't not showy. Right? Let's acknowledge <laughs> that, right? I mean, there's definitely an aspect of this. Which is like, look at this amazing thing that I'm doing. Um, you know, you're never quite like clubbed over the head with it. You know, you just, you accept the flow of it. But man, it was amazing. It was. Yeah. I, but and, and one other thing that I'll put out there, and I think Blinky wants to come in after this, which is that um, it gave the whole thing a dreamlike aspect. Um, and of course, with the framing device of this movie, where he starts with him waking up from sleep and then ends with him going to sleep, um, it raises the possibility that the whole thing is just a dream. Um, and much like Total Recall, in a way, this movie is a sequel to Total Recall. Is what I'm saying, uh-huh. or yeah. a prequel, or a, a, or you know that in Total Recall, maybe that's a, it's a Total Recall. Mm. <laughs> I remember this brought back memories of of when I was in high school and I was a film nerd, and uh, Boogie Nights came out, and Boogie Nights has a kind of a couple tracking shots in it, but the the first one in particular, I think the guy starts on like a crane and sort of lowers down onto the street, moves into the club, and then the camera sort of moves to the club where all the characters are interacting. And that was, you know, it was probably like four minutes long, but at the time, like that was a real kind of like, wow, I can't believe they pulled this off. I think it was when, when was, um, uh, children of men. Was that like 2005 in my mind is 2005. It was like, there are a couple big tracking shots in there. One of which actually does move through a, 
Warzone. But obviously, you know, seven or eight minutes tops. And, you know, that was the object of, of numerous admiring think pieces back then. So this is really, uh, I mean, obviously, it's not, in, and, you know, to, in, in their defense, nobody ever claimed that this was actually a single take. It is made to look like a single take, but it was very uh, explicitly like planned out very meticulously shot over, you know, in thousands of miles in different locations at different times stitched together. But it's still, I mean, even if you, even if you divide it into like, you know, 10 different tracking shots, each of them is a monumental achievement. So, so I, I'm sure that it, there'll be a, a film nerd or gaffer gaffer bars will have like, uh, you know, we'll be telling stories about this movie forever. Those actually those actually exist out here. And there are like publish There are publications that that focus on on things like this. Pete, single take. What, what are your thoughts? So I think one. First of all, it's not a single take. Right. It's two or three takes. Well, OK. Yeah. And but which which I think I actually I found that to be a huge relief when they actually cut it, even though it's sort of like it goes to darkness and it kind of stays in darkness and time elapses. So I guess you could think of it as time passing. Very oh, yeah, fast. it's 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 got to be many more than that. It's got to be. I mean, Blinky said 10. It's got to be that a dozen something, you know, something something like that or even more. But they do tricks like Alfred Hitchcock did in Rope, where like someone walks in front of the camera and that's where you edit or, you know, you go behind a wall and that's where you edit. So anytime they go around a piece of a piece of architecture, anytime they, you know, go into or out of a lighted area like or a dark area like that's a potential that's a potential cut point but but still the the effect is of a kind of continuous motion picture a continuous photograph well, except it isn't, right? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's not in time equals time. It's no, not no, yeah, exactly. Time. There's a lot yeah. of compression of time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The time gets compressed. And I, so I definitely, I like it a lot, right? I thought, first of all, the movie's awesome, right? This is a big Oscar contender. Seems like it might very well win. It's very, very well made. Um, and I think this is, it's worth comparing it in the sense of the editing in particular to, say, Saving Private Ryan, which is a movie about a larger number of men walking across a larger part of France, right? And this is a, a or the, it's Belgium, I suppose, right? Um, which is that you're following the individual people and characters and you get to know the characters as individuals in the scope of this sort of large story. But the way that it kind of cuts from event to event, you get kind of highlights of different parts of the war as they're going on. And it, it puts the actions of the main characters in the context of the larger historical story. And the narrower way in which 1917 uses its following, its point of view following of the soldiers in real time to an extent, right, during the periods in which it's moving in real time, I think suffices to separate the experience of the soldier who's being depicted as your protagonist more from the historical event that's happening, more from the uh, abstraction and narrativization of the larger events of the war, right? Because, like, the war and the things that are happening that are changing the course of the war and who's going to win and who's going to lose all exist on this impossibly large scale of abstraction relative to the individual people who are involved in it. And on the small scale, there's a whole ton of chaos and there's lots of individual events that could play out in any number of ways. And so it's comforting and reassuring to see the characters in something like Saving Private Ryan participate in even though no one would describe necessarily the D-Day sequence of Saving Private Ryan as a comforting scene. I think it relative to 1917, it somewhat is because it locates you in an historical event that you know about and locates the characters in a specific situation that you're familiar with. And, uh, and if you're not familiar with it, it educates you. It shows you what's going on. But this movie is so narrow in its focus on the characters that you don't really have a sense for what's going on in the broader war at the time, really. Like, you have a little bit of a sense of it, and it gives you those sort of terrifying up-close looks of the various machines of war, the giant craters, the tanks, the planes, which seems so small and paltry, the biplanes to us today, but coming at you with the propellers spinning are so horrifying, right? Um, it really gives a sense for how much bigger the war is than the people in it. And I think that that was maybe its sort of biggest innovation in terms of war filmmaking. Uh, I mean, for for the record, you know, you can you can look up the specifics 
the Smithsonian has put together a nice little uh, rundown of the specifics. The thing that is actually happening is the formation of a defensive fortification called the Hindenburg Line that's going to hold from the spring of 1917 until the autumn of 1918, by which point the Americans will have joined the war and will help the Allies push through. But this will be kind of a big defensive bulwark for the Germans, and they're building and consolidating this line and freeing up about 13 divisions, I believe it is, uh, that they can redeploy to other actions. They're launching submarine warfare. So this is a this is actually a sort of defensive reconsolidation in the face of a new counteroffensive that's happening in the course of the war. But you wouldn't know that from watching the movie, right? The movie just tells you that they've withdrawn to this really fortified place and whatever it is, it's a trap. We don't quite understand what's going on. And I felt like that was one of the big I mean, other than uh, you know, the aspects everybody else is talking about, that's one of the big factors that makes this that that sets the context for which this is a war movie. It is it is a movie that is within a war. It is not a movie that is depicting a war per se, like in totem. Uh, it, it's a very very narrow slice. Yeah, it's almost it's a, like the war is the enemy, right? The war that exists is the slasher in the horror movie coming after you. Yep, uh, and, that kind of thing. Yeah, and it actually like it does give it sort of horror movie dynamics, right? In in terms of having the the tactical requirement, the like the the sort of practical requirement of having to um, keep uh, focus on so tightly on the characters probably so as not to reveal you know aspects of the filmmaking machinery right like moving around in choreographed ways uh outside of the view of the camera um then the necessity of keeping very close to and very tight uh on the um uh on the characters like you know highlights these these you know the aspect of the the kind of difference in scale between the person and the landscape between the person and the war you know between the person and the the uh, spinning biplane between the person and the the stairs you know like stairs are are one flight of stairs is massive when you're falling down them you know or uh or a church a, a church is sort of massive and when um when it's on fire uh it's you know uh when it's on fire it's it's even more massive and so the the um the uh it and and then it does it sort of creates uh practically like in terms of like film language it creates this sort of four um four boundaries right at the edges of the screen from which threat can emerge right from below in the like the holes it actually it never paid when moriarty when um hot priest what what's the actor's name is that andrew scott uh said um you know, don't fall into a crater. You'll never get out of one. I mean, we never, that particular threat never quite materializes or never threatens though. We, you know, we do see them kind of skirt a crater, uh, on the way into the, the, uh, German trenches, the fruit as they cross no man's land. Um, but like uh, from below, from side to side, from the the guns or bayonets or knives, uh, from above in the case of the, the, um, you know the airplane that that comes down right there's there's just this you're very close to the person and the frame is this kind of matrix of of threat that uh that can emerge from all sides and so it's this, it becomes this like hyper horror movie and even though you're in a landscape you're in like a, a forest or a, a farmland you know wide open um you know, it, uh, wide open landscape. The effect is of creating a sort of horror movie corridor down which the characters always, uh, you know, always have to walk. And the kind of the the limitations on perspective, whether it's in the the uh, the back of the flatbed truck with the the canvas covering it, where you kind of can't see where you are, whether it's in the darkness after you fall and hit your head and are concussed, whether it's you know the kind of the weird uh, enclave, the weird like um, you know cocoon of the basement in the village where the the woman and the baby are hiding away uh the the baby with no name um are are hiding away like uh the the limitation the limitation of of perspective is sort of foregrounded by this um by this technique and and really does sort of like and 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 i think it's also important that 
at the beginning, like one of the things that brings the film that, that makes the stakes of the film clear is aerial photography, right? And you see that Colin Firth has in front of him, like this sort of patched together set of black and white aerial photographs that show the fortifications of the, you know, of the German trench that they've done that, that demonstrate that they are in fact not on the run, but have been, been planning this for some time and have, you know, fortified their, uh, fortified their position very you know very strongly so it's it's um yeah it 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 sort of has a it has a point um does does the one is it less because it's not time equals time like is it uh, there was one big point of 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 compression where he fell back Schofield fell back and and you know was knocked out for a period of time from from day to night um or from from you know dusk till almost dawn uh and lost a lot of a lot of his his time but like was any were there any other like big points of compression that that you noticed time compression uh kind of lacunae or um does it does it matter now that we're talking about this more, I get the sense that the some of the compression was implied or symbolic. In particular, I'm thinking about um, when he's coming out of the water and he's catching his breath and then he has a breakdown because of all the horror that he's seen. And then he gains his composure as he walks up the hill and then he finds the rest of the British soldiers. Are we meant to take that literally or is that supposed to be like something that happened over the course of several hours as he like got his, uh, got, got it together after his incredibly harrowing journey? Yeah, it's 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 unclear the kind of the the specific extent of his injuries. I have, I have a feeling they probably um, really carefully mapped it out, just just because of like and actually the there there are uh, there are really there's really good work from the actors um, when they get hurt. Like when uh, uh, what's his name the the um, the guy who comes with Schofield who dies, uh, Blake, yeah, Blake, yeah, he's um, Lance Corporal Blake is uh, is dying because he's been stabbed. Like his face is a, just a like a rapid fire. He's angry. He's determined. He's scared. He's he's hurt. He's pleading. He's whimpering. He's you know like it, like really really good and very very hard to do because in acting like you get an idea of what something is supposed to look like or what the experience is supposed to be like ow this is my pain face ow like just think think about it like make a hurt face like no. Ooh, like ow, or make a sad face or an angry face. Like you can, you can kind of think about that and you can kind of contort your face into that shape. But if you actually watch a person have an event, like if you ever were to watch documentary footage, you know, of a person kind of undergoing a difficult experience, um, like it's very, very hard. And I just, I noticed that from the, the Blake, the junior Blake, um, as as being just a really good and very specific moment of acting, like very accurately reported, it seemed to me in terms of like what the uh, uh, what the actual lived experience of that is like, and sort of conveying conveying behavior in a way that was that was um, not not sort of truthful in the way that artists talk about truthfulness, but that was accurately reported, you know, in the way a biologist might talk about uh, you know the contraction of muscles and. and and facial expressions and, and things like this. The other one that I thought was was really good was when Rob Stark found out that his brother had died. Um, and because you can't cut away, it just held on him hearing and processing that news. Uh, and and those those are very 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 hard scenes to do um, because what do you do? There's no action. Like listen and process. Well, how do you process? What does that mean? And like, what does your face look like when you do that? And it's very very hard to stay out of the uh, the um, you know the the effort to like cause an effect. You know to to make an effect on the audience. And that that you know is not really good acting because it's not accurately reported it's not honest it's not truthful and that the uh um but you know i thought he did a, a pretty good job with that sorry i i i digress but those are also um those are also consequences of the you know of the single shot of the no cutting um within a scene rule uh that you have to you know unless you're gonna like swing around keep swinging around the characters you know like uh 
I don't know. I, the, I, I remember like circular tracking shots in like 1990s TV shows being a very showy thing that happened. And if you're not going to do that, then you have to just hold on someone. And so you need actors who can withstand the kind of, um, who can withstand the kind of visibility that the, the, uh, the one shot technique is going to get them. But I digress. Yeah. The movie is also, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was, you know, you mentioned Rob Stark. We talked about uh, hot priest. We talked about, uh, Benny batch. Uh, one thing I found a little, little disconcerting about this movie is exactly that, that the two main characters are, are relative unknowns, fresh faces that, that we don't have past associations with, but they have all these sort of fun little guest stars, right? That it's like, oh, hey, it's Mark Strong. I know that guy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's like every little British character actor that pops up for like a little five-minute seed is like a fun little guy that you know and love from something else. Uh-huh. And I mean, I guess I, I cannot begrudge them for getting excellent actors who who really do bring a lot of gravity. I mean, you know, it's funny. It's like Benedict Cumberbatch. I think not only does a great job in that role, but the fact that like you have certain associations with him, that he has a certain you feel like you know him and you sort of like know this sort of like it's almost because he's a celebrity. He has like that kind of like celebrity mojo. When it's like you're like, oh wow, that's the guy in charge. It's it's he's he's a star, um, but it was. I mean, it is kind of this moment that like you know you're in this climactic moment of the movie, and there are lives on the line. There are people dying out there right now, and are they going to call off the attack? And you're like, oh hey, it's Doctor Strange. <laughs> Anyone else disoriented by the cameos? In the, well, no, uh, I, I think they address it early on. Right yeah. there's this there's a conversation they have. I think it's about either dogs or farm animals where they're talking while they're walking and they mention how Blake uh, Lance Corporal Blake says something along the lines of like everybody thinks that they're the same, but each one is different. Like, because the movie has this wonderful one of the one of the sort of superficial benefits of the techniques we're talking about is the way the pacing and the sort of activity and inactivity and the sort of punctuated terror, long stretches of suspense and then sort of dialogue scenes, which have a real kind of dramatic uh, sincerity to them. A lot of the time they, they sort of have little moral lessons that they sort of discuss, right, little philosophical moments as they interrogate their situation. And one of them is to kind of de- James Joyceify this war, right? To de to de thin redline it. Although that's also a World War II movie. Um, that no, these are not individual men who have been swallowed up by the state and uh, had their identity erased by their uniform commoditization as as soldiers. These are individuals who are each in an unfathomably extreme circumstance, and you just never you don't really see a lot of each one of them uh, in a lesser movie. The economy of movies that would say, well, this is a big star and they have to have a scene as opposed to, you know, four lines right, or whatever it is. Um, but I, but I do think that not just having Benedict Cumberbatch, but having Colonel Mackenzie Benedict Cumberbatch with an unexplained like <laughs> eye scar, right? Like the eye scar is so great. He just shows up and he's he's like a heroic figure from his own movie. And Each the, one of them, yeah. yeah. And the, the yeah, exactly. That's that's it. Sorry, Pete. You were right on the verge of of what I was about to say. No, go for it. By oh, well, one of the things about great actors is that they bring a world into the room with them, right? And that there's a whole uh, history, there's a whole series of events that led up to this, there's a whole, you know, kind of milieu. And that, like, uh, and they they all do that, right? Like, and Hot Priest, as this sort of dissolute lieutenant, is the kind of the, the junior officer who is, like, who has just decided that this is sort of nihilism and it's nothing's worth anything, and he's been decimated his you know his uh uh whatever organizational unit he's responsible for his platoon or whatever has been decimated um and he's just going to drink right like that that like it's a world you know it's a whole other movie 100 you know 100 minutes 120 minutes just on that person mark strong is the kind of executive officer uh executive officer uh sort of person hates the co but would never ever ever say it uh you know the the bumbling fat guy riding ahead in the rolls royce right but 
you know, and like does what he can in as efficient manner as possible to like make things happen, even though everything around him sucks. Or or Benedict Cumberbatch as sort of Colonel Kurtz, you know, the uh, like the uh, person who like who has sort of seen the horror and you know the I love I love the detail um, I love the detail of uh, Mark Strong telling him, hey, make sure you have witnesses when you when you deliver this news or else he because you know this guy just might like just go for it anyway and when you see that like you sort of wonder and he has witnesses he's gonna go for it anyway he doesn't go for it anyway but then like but then he gives this speech about like look it's not it's not that i'm so hungry for bloodshed so thirsty for for you know violence or vengeance or whatever that i'm gonna do this it's it's that it's it's pointless right like and and uh uh what's the line in hamlet if uh uh if it if it be not to come then it will be now if it be not now then it will come then it you know the readiness is all right and so like if we go over the top today or tomorrow or next week when they tell us to because they're gonna tell us to uh it doesn't it doesn't really matter it gives a whole a whole a lot of nuisance and like being a great actor he brings that world in into the room with him so like i i'm i'm sort of with i'm with pete on on this one that there there are like meta casting elements that that you know um that get you know, add add to the movie rather than just distracting um they couldn't i mean okay matt thought experiment blinks could could you have cast famous people famous young actor could you have cast i don't know who's who's famous terry styles yeah sure right <laughs> taron taron edgerton and uh tom holland's british right yeah, could you have cast Spider Man as the as the lead character in this movie? Yes, and he also looks twelve. You know, um, yeah, I don't know. Could 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 you have done that? I don't. You know, it's interesting because what you're implying is that it it makes sense to cast people who are who are known famous actors that the audience has a connection with in these sort of small supporting roles. But it also makes equal sense to cast people who are sort of these fresh face newcomers in the in the main roles who are sort of like your avatars as you pass through the world of the movie and that both both of those sort of like associations are necessary to achieve the effect they wanted to achieve yeah i i mean i that's a fair way that's a fair way to say it yeah to flesh it out a little bit more right the, the main character whose journey we follow throughout the entire movie he's a total blank slate um you know nothing is revealed about his um, his background, any family that or very little is revealed about uh, that uh, until the very end, right? Where he pulls out uh, the pictures of uh, of his loved ones from home uh, from his jacket. And then because like the idea being that, right, uh, that that maximizes the amount that we can relate to him during the movie. Um, and then we just like give him some sense of, uh, of identity to, to close things up towards the end. At least that was my read of it. Pete, you were about to hop in. I just wanted to clarify one thing because you guys are all racing forward with this. And for the benefit of the people listening who, like me, didn't quite know what you're talking about, I think I've grasped, is the main guy from Fleabag? Is that when you're calling him Hot Priest, what does that mean? Oh, no, Moriarty. the main guy, no, right? And yeah, who is Mor- Hot Priest? Yeah, okay. Moriarty is Hot Priest from Fleabag. Okay, gotcha. I was wondering because there wasn't a hot priest in this movie. And you guys keep talking about hot priests. And I'm thinking, who is hot priest? Is that I heard there was a hot priest in Fleabag. I haven't watched Fleabag yet. So I wasn't sure. No. Yeah. So so, so the, the uh, British the British are all about hot uh hot things. So there's like a hot fuzz. That that was a <laughs> Edgar Wright movie. There's a yeah. hot priest, you know. Right. Um yeah, hot there's soggy soggy bottom. Yeah, or... exactly. Hot spotted. <laughs> dick that's a dessert i think well also mark made a little comment that we let go a little too fast which was he mentioned harry styles right and mark you're referencing something specific with that i i recall right yeah, the, the fact that he was one of the young lads in dunkirk right right, right. so like which was what, up yeah. until recently was like you know the the technically flashy uh british war movie um of the zeitgeist and now that has clearly been replaced by 1917 
I mean, what ways for you stick out as this movie being the kind of new hotness and Dunkirk being the old and busted or maybe just in general differences? If you don't think of it necessarily strictly as better or hotter or I don't know if it's that's, if it's um, if it's fair you know, to compare, compare the two of them. Maybe we shouldn't go too far down this rat hole, but just like very briefly. Right. Dunkirk, a technically flashy um like more of a head movie in terms of Christopher Nolan's uses of time. Um, and this movie, because time is so linear, it, it's like it's it's more of a heart movie and forces you to like confront the characters uh, and all the danger uh, in the way that Matt described with the, the, the sort of the, the four corners framing piece of it. Well, one thing that's clear is that Sam Mendes does deliberately put a bunch of, uh, you know, Indian and black actors in the movie as soldiers as a corrective, one would think, to some of the responses to Dunkirk and its mm-hmm. casting choices. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, although, I mean, I guess what I would say is that Dunkirk is one of, is a war movie of the sort of alienating variety where you watch these people that, you know, kind of become savage at times and be subjected to situations that seek to kind of break down their humanity, which is, I guess, just sort of a Christopher Nolan kind of thing as well, right? Like, can we break these people? Are they going to snap? When they're sort of pulling on each other, trying to crawl out of of the underground, uh, the underwater boat as the water is coming in, right? Like, just, just red in tooth and claw. And the fact that he's Harry Styles is kind of like, you know, that sort of shred of extra recognition that will help help you continue to identify with his identity through the course of the movie. Whereas in this movie, these guys, it's, it doesn't work that way, right? Like, I don't think that the violence is, is dehumanizing in the way that it's portrayed in this movie. I mean, it's horrific. It's absolutely, completely horrific. But I was interested in how it wasn't as dehumanizing in particular and how they kept that focus on individuals, which I guess I'll just keep going back to. I mean, I don't know. Do you guys think of this as an anti-war movie? It seems like a big topic to at least address a little bit is or is this a glorification of war by showing loyal soldier buddies who care about honor and duty who are going out there to survive and look, watch each other's backs and thus is encouraging people to join the military and thus is part of everything wrong with the world. I just uh, I, I just like I, I, I don't want to leave Christopher Nolan so quickly because I think even I, you know, I love the part in uh, in um you know, the Batman movies, when, when Bane says, we shall go on to the end, we shall fight in France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans, <laughs> we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, Batman. Um, <laughs> you, know. you merely adopted cigar smoking. I was born with <laughs> You, tomorrow, madam, I shall be sober, but you... <laughs> The uh... maybe the reason he's wearing the mask is because the Kaiser dropped mustard gas on him from a zeppelin or something. <laughs> you think Bane is a World War One veteran? That's what it is. Sure, why not? I mean, that makes about sure. as much sense as anything else. Right? Yeah, something, something, something. Lazarus Pit, something. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but Pete, I actually do want to want to pivot a little bit to the sort of the the themes of the movie, the kind of story it's trying to tell, because it struck me afterwards. What an interesting, almost perverse World War One story this was, because the, the central fact of the Western Front, which comes out very well at the beginning of this movie, is that it's it's this imp- impossible defensive struggle. Everybody is dug in, and if you even poke your head over the end of that trench, you will be instantly sniped. There is no hope of of even moving like, you know, a few yards out. You're not going to make it as far as the dead horse. Right. And that that the most you could hope for is that you'll get to throw your flare gun back before you die. And that's the way it's been for months. And that's the way it's always going to be. But suddenly we're in this bizarre situation where the enemy is gone. Right. And that it's a story about these two people. And it's also weird that it's just the two people, because I, I really I'm not a World War One expert, but from like you know the podcast that I've been listening to for the centenary, um, I don't get the feeling that this is a, a war where small units are being sent off on commando missions behind enemy lines. That's not nearly as common as it was in other other struggles because the, the you know the lines are so rigidly drawn, you know, especially on this particular front, and so that like telling this story about the Western Front in which these two people stroll unopposed through 
no man's land, you know, and, and literally every second they're expecting to be to be sniped, right? They're expecting somebody to open fire on a machine gun and it never happens. And obviously there, there are numerous threats, but they're highly atypical threats, right? So like this, it's a story about a, a mission in World War One that's unlike anything else in the war. It's this, this brief interlude between these sort of dug in defensive struggles. And that's the story that they choose to tell, partially because... I mean, I think there's a reason why you see less World War One movies than World War Two movies, and it's because the nature of the conflict is so dug in, and there's so little opportunity for momentum and and movement, and, and any offensive is going to end in seconds. It just this this horrible bloodshed that like you almost have to find this very peculiar moment where where things open up and allow you to to finally cover a few miles without getting mowed down. Yeah, I think because they they do describe the war at times indirectly through their conversations. And I think you're right to say they're not going to get past the horse because the expectation at the beginning of the war was you were going to see a lot of high mobility cavalry maneuvering. You were going to you were going to further indulge in that kind of tactical balance between defensive infantry fortifications and offensive flanking maneuvers. Right. That, that you know, the sort of tradition, the Napoleonic tradition writ large. And then as you watched, you know, come through the the uh, the Frank, the uh, Franco-Prussian War was very fast. Right. You can ship so many troops to the front using losing railroads. Right. Uh, I mean, at this point, we're after the charge of the light brigade, but I don't know if we've really fully absorbed it. But but there's this frightening speed that various technologies and the kind of honing of various sorts of logistical capabilities have imparted upon modern militaries and it's exercised you know with with great determination in a variety of wars around the world i mean pancho villa pancho villa is another great example of this kind of tragedy where you know he's riding his horses around and he's raiding and he's guerrilla you know fighting behind enemy lines in both mexico and the u.s and then you know finally somebody with a modern military education ends up in charge of the mexican state military and just builds a bunch of trenches right and then he's dead right in artillery right and it, there's no hope so this idea both and i'm saying that both in terms of they walk through into the no man's land and they pass the horse that died and then they pass the tank that died right and they're sort of seeing the evolution of of military mobility and then in terms of the conversation that's when blake says to uh oh gosh schofield right uh says to him you know i didn't pick you when i picked you i didn't know it was going to be for this i thought it would be fast which is a discussion, which is talking about the war itself. Like they didn't start World War One thinking, okay, I'll build a bunch of trenches, you build a bunch of trenches, and then we'll shoot at each other and stare at each other and then run up over the top in the hundreds of thousands for, you know, four years until we've totally brutalized all our the entire population of, you know, our nations and all other nations. Just right. Like it, that wasn't the plan. Uh, what? The word I don't believe he used was fast. So he definitely he might have said that in there, but the word that stuck out to me most was easy. I thought this was yeah. easy. I thought it would be easy you're right you're right yeah exactly and it's not and so they're describing the war like that so i agree with you matt that this is a this is wrestling with world war one as a war to depict in film which is hard because in world war ii you have all these machines that were able to operate the way that they were expected to in terms of making broad mobile strokes right i mean yes you had u-boats in world war one too you had submarines but uh and you know das boot is another great uh Great movie. It's not Das Boot is a World War One movie, right? No, um, no, it's World War Two. Oh, that's sure. World War Two. Okay, that's World War Two. I mean, but there, right there are subgenres of World War Two movies. There's the World War Two bomber movie, like Memphis Belle. There's a World War Two tank movie, like Fury with Brad Pitt's. Yeah. You know, the, I mean, right? There's a ton of infantry movies. There are different fronts, but there's so much motion, right? There, you could cover hundreds of miles in a single mission. Like say, the Saving Private Ryan mission is not atypical for World War Two, right? We're gonna we're gonna push behind enemy lines and we're gonna try to claim a bunch of territory really fast and we have a lot of machines to let us do it paratroopers are important right whereas in world war one the idea that like we want you to go seven miles is is crazy it's a crazy mission and when they get it they just like can't believe the idea that like we're going to cover seven miles we can't even cover seven feet in this war but it's almost like it's almost like a magic wand has been waved i mean it's it's almost like a a head-waving thing to allow us to tell of a, a, a filmic story about a very non-filmic war, you know, about a war that sort of defies traditional sort of like 
cinema narratives. It's sort of like this very particular set of circumstances that almost seems designed to allow us to like have this, this guided tour of like an area of the battlefield uh, before, before once again, defensive, you know, between these two sort of naps under the tree, it's almost like the, the war, the rules are suspended um, and allows us to have the movie unfold, and then like the the curtain comes down again, and the movie ends. Yeah, so so, so pick up on that to answer the question of like, is this or is this not an anti-war movie? Um, the, the answer to that, I think, is is, is neither, it, it, none of the above. It, it, what this movie is trying to do is, um, in this very specific context, which is to say, you know, to to uh, address a specific problem of showing kinetic movement in a very non-kinetic and static war. Um, Tell a story about very individual her- heroism, and that's—I I think that's it. And it's like you know, it, it, you could say that there are gestures towards making an anti-war movie, in particular by the end when he's effectively running against the tide of all the other men who are just you know uh, blindly running to their death, and he also doesn't have a gun and he stops an attack. Sure, that you know, if you want to read anti-war message into that. Uh, all fine and good, but he still does so in the context of a war effort and uh, trying to save those men for another run over the top. What do you think, Matt? I mean, is it a war movie or or an anti-war movie? I I think that it's not. I don't know. I think that that. I mean, I've I've done this riff before, but you know, um, uh, who Auden I think wrote poetry makes nothing happen. And uh, that only makes sense in in the context of, uh, you know, the idea that it should make something (laughs) happen Um, and that, uh, you know, it it never makes uh, never makes anything happen that you want it to. And it makes all kinds of things happen, but they're not they're never the things you planned. Um, And that like, you know, right. Exactly. Like in this, in this film, like all those, all those young boys, you know, marching to their deaths thinking I'm going, uh, I'm going home to see my mother. uh, Right. I'm going home no more to Rome. I'm only going over Jordan. I'm only going over home. Right. Like that's poetry kind of making something happen right there. Or the, the jumblies, right. Like uh, uh, in a sieve, they went to see, you know, it, it it makes something happen, but um, I don't know. To, to the the sort of artistic stance, the kind of the the like artistic mission that that I favor is a lot more um, faithful to individual experience and all of its contradiction than it is to a big idea of like war, you know, patriotism and, and defeating the Hun. I do love the Hun, by the <laughs> way, that's it. And how the Hun, the Hun is referred to uh, a great deal, but the, the, um, uh, that or you know the idea of you know uh, uh, the dehumanization uh, wrought wrought by the the you know industrial war machine that that um, grinds up grinds up people into body parts and sort of stacks them on the uh, uh, stacks them in the trenches and stacks them in the in in no man's land. I mean, I think it's too. I think the 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 body horror is to um I think it would be glossed over a little more in a in a more kind of valorizing type of type of war movie you know the the um like when he he uh uh accidentally plunges his hand into that guy's body cavity you know uh when, <laughs> as you do you know, right. um, but who like, among us has not done that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, right in our run from f- across no man's land, from from one fortified trench to the next, who who among us has not, you know, plunged our hand accidentally into the body cavity of a fellow or an enemy soldier when our our buddy trips down the down the crater into and slams into us, and our our you know infected hand cut on the the razor wire is uh, plunged deep into the the you know, protoplasm of our fellow man, the, uh, right. Like it was too, it was a little too much. I mean, honestly, like this was a, this was a film with like audible reactions. I saw it with a pretty full, uh, theater and it was a film with audible reactions, but most of the reactions were like, 
Ugh. Then my shrieks of terror uh, at that jump scare moments. Yeah, I de- <laughs> yeah, movie. I can't, I can't Freaking stand mouse, that. Man. I can't stand that stuff. And this was this was two hours of cortisol. I mean, I may as well have just injected it directly into my bloodstream. Like I, I walked out and I was like, "Thank God, marijuana is legal in California because <laughs> I need to calm the f down." Yeah, I'm really surprised you guys saw the movie as ambiguous. I thought it was extremely anti-war, <laughs> but I guess not anti-soldier, right? It does. It's not like the sort of the soldier is a necessary component of the war, but like, uh, I mean, uh, okay, wait, I wanna I wanna play devil's advocate to yeah. that because don't you think that, you know. D- despite how bleak the story got at certain points, don't you feel like this was about as Hollywooded ending as you could ask for? That he has two missions, two seemingly impossible missions to sort of deliver the message in time and stop them from falling into a trap and specifically to 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 meet this guy's brother, right? He swears to, to the dying Blake that he's going to meet the guy's brother. And you could easily imagine one or both of those missions failing or turning out to be futile in many ways that he I mean, gets the, there too late. The first one was, time. he did get there too late. I mean, yeah. he got there, you know, one yeah, wave, one the, wave the, too late. The first wave was right. I mean, he got there a <laughs> little later than was lads. optimal, but he gives them, I, I think the moment where, where uh, Betty Batch reads the message and he says like, you know, stand them down. I think that felt like a very sort of like, I mean, I don't think people actually stood up and cheer, but I think you're supposed to interpret that as like, he did it. The son of a bitch pulled it off. So what does that mean? I guess I guess I'm just saying that I could see it it felt like okay, let's put this in context of the scene about medals, right? Where they talked about like, wow, if we pull this off, like you could get a medal. And he's like metal and 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 Schofield is like, you know, extremely dismissive of the idea. Medals are worthless. And he, and he even goes as far as to say, like, you know, I had a medal and I traded it. What did he trade it for? For a bottle of wine. <laughs> right. He traded it for a bottle of wine. Right. Uh, like, that's how little it's worth it to him. He just wants something that's going to help him get through the day. Um, and so Schofield, here's a guy who's who's scornful of the idea of heroism, whereas Blake is sort of a little more, you know, uh, still has these king and country ideas in his head. And it feels like. I don't I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's tough to say, like, if at the end of the movie, Schofield recovers some of his idealism, some of his, you know, faith in his fellow man. But I, I do kind of feel like you as the audience are supposed to feel that, like, you just watch something, you know, you, you just watch true heroism as opposed to just like another feudal act in a feudal war, as opposed to like, you know, what, what Benny Batch says, which is that, like, none of this matters. Everyone's just going to die tomorrow. And so, like, you know, it, it it's. It, it feels like like the movie is more on the side of Blake than it is on the side of Benny Batch, mm-hmm. right? It, and feeling like like this stuff matters, like like the 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 mission matters, like saving these people's lives on this particular day is everything, rather than like these people are doomed one way or another, message or no message. And, and let me have one other piece of evidence to this uh, this train of thought, uh, which is the scene with the woman and the abandoned child mm. and like they formed that for a moment there's peace and he has this opportunity to essentially escape the war disappear into the hole and join this airsats family um and the woman's pleading with him stay don't go and he's like no i have to go and you know their duty honor you know the mission yeah. maybe uh, more to this so one important. particular guy like you feel like at when Blake dies, you feel like the mission becomes so much more rather than just sort of like, why'd you drag me into this? Now I have mm-hmm. to do this thing. It becomes this thing where it's like, Blake saved my life. I have to do this no matter what for Blake, not because the general told me to. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe that maybe maybe as a story, it becomes less about the sort of like, you know, the 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 broader themes of like heroism and war and more about like these the bond that you have to your friend the bond that you have to like you know your adopted family and and how that how that can mean everything how that maybe is even more important than your real family who you're trying to get home to you know honoring the what what whatever you shared with these people in war you know whether or not the mission meant anything I think we've mentioned I think everybody's been name checking one of the things that Benedict Cumberbatch says, but in his very economical appearance on screen, he really he says two things. 
And I think the second one is important to keep in mind as well, right? The first thing he says when he's talking to Schofield kind of off to the side in private is, you know, they're going to call the attack at some point in the future, right? It's inevitable that they're going to call the attack. And uh, and that, I think, is is meant to reflect on the absurdity of what Schofield's doing, right? This idea that, yes, you've come here and you've stopped the fight for now, but, you know, you haven't stopped it permanently. And also it humanizes and surprises with regards to um, uh, Colonel uh, McNasty. I forget what his name is, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which is funny because it was repeated so many times in the movie. But Colonel Scarface, right? It humanizes him a bit because it reflects that his desire to kind of fight the fight isn't necessarily motivated by him being unethically bloodthirsty. It might be motivated by him being kind of frustrated and mistreated by the bureaucracy. But the other thing that he says, right, is that there's only one way that this war ends, and that's with the last man standing. And that is 100 percent wrong. That is not how World War One ends. Right. And I think that that is supposed to land as false as his statement about the inevitability of some sort of future attack is supposed to land as true, because we know what happens in 1918, which is that all the parties sit down at a diplomatic table and they voluntarily cease fighting. They call an armistice on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. The guns fall silent and everybody goes to mourn their dead. And of course, commit the various diplomatic failures that lead to the second uh, the second world war. But still, you know, 21 years later. Right. Uh, So like, you know, but but still the guns do fall silent because people do what Schofield did, which is not just, you know, John Lennon, the situation and like, you know, oh, imagine if nobody had to fight, but like use the military apparatus to make the proactive decision that you are not going to attack the other person. Right. Um, And so I I mean, I don't think that that's a sort of simple solution to what's going on in the movie, but I think it's presenting an alternative sort of notion of what what the sort of heroic mission here is. Like, what is the victory condition that we're all kind of rooting for in this movie? And I think it's ultimately the armistice. Uh, I mean, the other example, and I'd love to hear what you all think of this, right, is you have this scene, that horribly tragic scene which, of course, upgraded this from a movie for children to a movie for adults, where Blake tells Schofield to go get water for the German pilot, and the German pilot stabs Blake to death in the stomach off screen, right? Because what would it be like if it's like, oh, get him water. Oh, look, we were supposed to be enemies, but really we have so much in common. There's no reason for us to fight each other. We're trying to stop the attack. And it's like, oh, yeah, here, I'll, I'll fix the plane and we'll fly right over, right? Like, no, <laughs> this, they don't. They, they, the, the moment there, the sort of harrowing moment there, you could either see it as like Germans are monsters or because these are not Nazis, these are Germans, right? Uh, the the situation is so deep into it that you can't m- merely drop your guard, although maybe to be a good person, you kind of have to. But then they take that, right, and they flip it in a really clever way. And I'm not sure how much we're supposed to really catch this on the first read, right, where when Schofield is skulking through and, and jogging around in the darkness and he comes upon the German who's puking, his interaction with his friend is like almost exactly the same as the interaction between Blake and Schofield and the German pilot in a deceptive way, right? He covers the guy's mouth and it's like, we're not going to talk. We're going to calm down. And all the guy does is call to his friend. And all Blake did was say, get him water. All he did was call to his friend. The German guy might have thought, shoot this guy, right, or dig a grave, right, Uh, or call for help, right? I've been discovered. Uh, And so – and when Schofield murders the unarmed German soldier (laughs) with his bare hands – like he's not unarmed because he does pull a knife on him. There's that – you think you're going to see another Saving Private Ryan scene, and it is sort of like that. It's another kind of like – death war death sex scene happening similar to the tower scene in saving private ryan (laughs) um but but at the end is that wrenching cry of pain and anguish as the puking drunk german guy mourns his friend right and so there's both this notion that the situation that they're in can't really be just sidestepped or avoided like the idea that we would just not do it is is problematic for a variety of reasons but also you know there's a symmetry to it because the other guy can't not do it either and ultimately, you know, ultimately the mission here is the generals are trying uh, – the generals should stop the war. Uh, and that's what happens in the real – in real life. 
Um, I mean, I guess, of course, it also happens under the context of the collapse of the Tsardom into the Soviet Union, ultimately, and also, you know, the the impending, the albeit, you know, seemingly interminable victory of the of the uh, allied forces pushing into Germany, I suppose, with their superior resources with America in the war. But like, you know, it's it's like. You know what I mean? It's 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 invoking a lot of notions that the thing that they're doing is absurd and meaningless ultimately, but the choices that they make in the moment have context in the in the meaning of their own lives and what they choose to do. You know, Blake died. He saved his friend, and he died because he tried to give mercy to the enemy. And and like, and I think that when you go all the way to the end, where Schofield is talking to Blake's brother. There's a reinterpretation of what Blake's talking about, what Lance Corporal Blake's talking about with regards to medals, which is like he doesn't know what to say, right? Schofield doesn't know what to say to Blake's brother. And ultimately what he says is like he saved my life, right? And there's because there's this long moment where he's like, what am I going to say about this guy? He's my friend. I said that already. You know, he was a good man. He told funny stories that didn't really comfort him very much. And then he's like, he saved my life. And there's this sort of moment of of kind of strength that comes from that. And I think that that there's that I don't exactly know exactly how to wrap my mind around it. But the idea and he does eventually say, I'm glad he was with you. Right. Uh, when he died. But but that moment where the brother manages to go through some sort of process with regards to his dead brother because his brother did something heroic, uh, it, it speaks to a different sort of notion of what it is to get a medal than that it is for the benefit of the state, right? Uh, like they, they don't necessarily give you the ribbon because they want to benefit from encouraging your behavior to do things that are in their interest. The medals also serve as a social function for the people who are trying to deal with what's going on and make sense of it. And, and it's interesting. And I guess I'll, I'll stop jibber-jabbing because I mentioned a whole bunch of stuff. But like when Schofield sits down and looks at the picture of his family again, which he said at the beginning of the movie, he can't do. Like he's unable to do it. He's gone through some sort of transformation. Something has happened to him that's changed him. And I'm, it doesn't seem simple. It seems very tricky and complicated and connected to all these ideas of like, if you sit still and try to do nothing, that doesn't stop the war, right? You merely let the people die that you should be proactively doing something. I don't know. Uh, it's well, a the, really, I found it really challenging and confounding in this regard. It is. And I mean, to, to, um, you know, like, uh, I, I think it, it, speaks to what I what I said before is that the 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 film is kind of loyal to individual experience even when it doesn't stack up sort of neatly in a in a you know philosophical statement but one one thing I mean w- one related but distinct thing I think that happens to Schofield in particular three times that I can I guess maybe four during the movie is that he he has a choice um, between what you're talking about, between sitting still and uh, moving on, which is um, in three of the four instances kind of figured as a choice between death and life. Um, the uh, the interlude with the, the French woman and the, the no name baby is slightly different because it's it's a little bit like it's a sort of a burlesque of of family life. It's a kind of a travesty, I guess, of family life. And that, um, you know, because it, it, he couldn't actually, in point of fact, stop there. It's 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 got to be related to the scene that that was cut out of the the original cut of apocalypse now but that was restored in the redux or director's cut or final version there's so many you know restored versions of apocalypse now but where where they get off the boat and go to this sort of french chateau in vietnam for for a little while and there's this weird domestic kind of colonial interlude uh that was cut out because the the like the note on Apocalypse now is stay on the boat, you know, and uh, so that's that's a special case. But he could like stay in that in that little cocoon, or or you know do what he does, which is sort of press on when he he hears the the um, time when he hears the the clock um, chiming six in the morning. So he six in the morning. So what you gonna do? <laughs> I I uh, but then okay so. Sorry, long long way around the barn to get to the three three instances where I think he he chooses life over death. One is where Blake pulls him out of the rubble in the the collapsed German barracks, uh, underground barracks. Two is when he uh, sort of dies and is reborn in the river, clutching on to the wood um, as the or the cherry 
the cherry blossoms falling around them, uh, him in that scene, falling, falling like snow. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, it's actually, it's not, I don't think it's like, uh, Japanese symbolism of cherry blossoms. I don't think the cherry blossoms are, are a symbol of death. I, th- I think it's his friend. I think it's like supernatural aid, uh, yeah. right from his friend. It's Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's the force, you know, at that last moment, like coming, coming back. And then the third one is a little more subtle, but it's true. He could sit down and just listen to the music and and could kind of die there or fall asleep there but it's the wrong tree to fall asleep under Mm. you know um and in 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 each of those in each of those situations you know um it's not necessarily that that he's mm, had a had a uh an awakening about the meaning of Blake's death, but in the moment he sort of chooses, he chooses life over death or, or in the first instance, the instance where Blake saves his life, he's kind of yanked back to life, um, by, you know, by, by Blake who, who, by the way, I thought, uh, when Blake, you know, gets this assignment for his brother, uh, and, you know, starts, starts, uh, they start off and they make it, they make it past the the German barracks. Um, they make it sort of through the first act of the movie. I thought, God, he's the protagonist, but he seems like the annoying sidekick. Turns out he was the annoying sidekick after all. <laughs> um, but you know, I don't know. Choose life, my brothers, my my comrades <laughs> in arms. <laughs> Uh, we're we're uh, kind of uh, near near the end of our time, and and I'm glad that we've managed to do this in uh, in a single take. I don't know if anyone um, has anything uh, they want to say or a poem that they they want to read, but now would be the time, lads. I mean, only that I continue to encourage everyone I know to avoid movie trailers if they can at all, because as good as the trailer for 1917 is, it gives away so many amazing set pieces, including the the big final parallel charge across the uh, across the front lines. Uh, and, per- and honestly, perpendicular like, if you, if you watch the trailer read between the lines. Yeah, sorry, sorry. That right. I, I did take eighth grade geometry. Uh but I right, and if you read between the lines, you could have a pretty good idea that like maybe Blake doesn't make it all the way through the movie because he doesn't seem to be in a lot of these climactic shots. Um so I I kinda wish I hadn't seen that because as amazing as as goosebump uh inducing as that moment was when he just comes out of the trench and he just starts charging across all these people who are just charging in the sorry, the perpendicular direction. I wish I had known it was coming in the back of my mind for the entire movie yeah i I mean i'll read a poem this is one (laughs) there's a bunch of this movie has a lot of poems in it this is like a horror this is a survival horror film where they take a break to read a multi-stanza piece of british light verse from like the 1910s right uh i won't read the c and the civ one although you can read that if you want i will read uh much shorter randall gerald's the death of the ball turret gunner which is a poem from world war ii but which i think this movie references uh it goes as such from my mother's sleep i fell into the state and i hunched in its belly till my wet fur froze six miles from earth Loosed from its dream of life, I woke to Black Flack and the Nightmare Fighters. When I died, they washed me out of the turret with a hose. Uh, this was a poem that was given to us in my, my high school English class, and I think uh, I think it was 11th grade or so, as an example of anti-war literature, right? And it's this sort of movement to speak about the horrors of war in an honest way and to get away from this dulce et decorum est, ironically involving the poem, right, dulce et decorum est, uh, notion of, of dying in war as being a good thing. When they are starting out on their adventure and they're looking for the hot priest, who I now know who that is, which is Moriarty from the Sherlock Holmes TV show, they are walking by a particular pile of stuff. And somebody turns to them and says, be careful where you step. You're walking on the dead. Right. And it's like this. And our sergeant had to be washed out of the dugout with a hose. And what that said to me was, I we are acknowledging that because this topic has people involved in it who actually died, right? And because we recognize that there is a powerful and purposeful artistic uh, tradition of depicting the brutality of war in the hope of ending it, right? We are participating in that tradition. 
that 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 uh, that that this poem and other poems like it that kind of speak to the absurdity of the situation and and really to the to the state of not necessarily loss of self, but of just desperate horror. Right. And, and just desperate, just abusive endurance. Right. Uh, you know, the the endurance of kind of unfathomable abuse at the hands of this massive, this massive thing that is a war that's too big for any one person to know. Right. Like um, that we're part of that, that we understand that what we're, we're talking about is touchy. And so we're going to deal with it with care. We're going to we're going to take care because we know that we're walking on the dead. Um, and, and for that, I felt like. The, this movie, I think, did a really good job of picking its spots. The fact that we can have intense discussions about this movie and the various ways that it engages or doesn't engage with various sorts of heroic or literary traditions uh, without necessarily sitting down and being like, yeah, but also that one sex scene was kind of the full, not that great and it shouldn't <laughs> have been in the movie. Right? Like, <laughs> I'm reminded of Enemy at the Gates, right? <laughs> Which I love. That sex scene was awesome. Yeah, that sex scene is awesome. <laughs> 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 Very different movie. Also <laughs> invested in depicting the horrors of war, but a very different movie. <laughs> if you like Enemy of the State, it is neither a it is not a predictor one way or the other as to whether you will like 1917. It is very different. All right, I Mark. Uh, Mark, parting thought from you. Uh, yeah, I, I cannot let this movie go without pointing out its great factual error, which is that a baby at the age that we saw in the bunker was probably too young to digest cow's milk. So uh, what can I say? It really pulled me out of the moment at that point there. <laughs> it really broke the immersion. All right. Well, as a, uh, as a movie about the nobility of white people, this is a shoe in for best picture. So we'll see it at the Oscars. Uh, we'll see it at the Oscars, no doubt. Next week, I gather there's some sort of sporting contest. We'll be back with more overthinking at podcast uh, at that time. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you to Matt, Pete, and Mark for podcasting with me. We are overthinking it. And we are at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve.